And we are recording. Uh, thank you guys for joining us here on Facebook Live, first of all, for our uh, Mansion Murders Trial, the podcast. I'm Melanie Alnwick, a uh, reporter with Fox 5. I've been covering the trial along with my colleague, Paul Wagner. Uh, Paul has been also uh, doing a lot of background on this story, too. You've been on it for three years. Oh, yeah. I was there the, the day after. Uh, in fact, actually, we broke the story that there were four bodies uh, taken from the house that day. So I actually got a phone call from uh, a uh, source who told me about it, and uh, we didn't know at that time. And uh, I called the second district commander uh, who was on the scene. I said, uh, I'm being told that four bodies were just taken out of that house. He says, that's what the fire department is telling me. And at that point, we sent, uh, I think, Marina Morocco went over there. Wow. And, I mean, and who would have ever guessed uh, where we'd be today? I mean, this trial is, is crazy, right? Well, we learned from the very start that it was a, a very uh, vicious and upsetting crime. And uh, we knew that. The mayor showed up right at the scene that yeah. afternoon. The chief of police was there. They told us that a Porsche was missing. You could see the house was uh. opulent. And so you knew some, some people uh, that uh, maybe a lot of people might know were living in that house. Yeah, I was just out there this morning, and you can tell that the uh, the people in the neighborhood are still um, they're still very much living with this. They're still very much affected by what happened in that sure, house. Sure, because it's now an empty lot. The house is gone, and uh, the lot's for sale. It's just uh, an awful, awful crime. Yeah. So let's um, obviously we're here to talk about the trial itself. We know mm -hmm. that um, it's going to go on for they said about two months, and um, it's been pretty meticulous so far. Uh, I feel like they are really kind of laying the groundwork. So let's first talk about, we have Judge uh, Juliet McKenna. Um, I always try to describe people a little bit. Uh, she has a, a sort of kind of salt and pepper hair, a pixie haircut, um, but seems like she's pretty matter of fact, right? Would you say so? Yeah, and she doesn't interject at all. In the, the whole time I've been sitting in there in these afternoons, she doesn't say a word except... Uh, at the end, I mean, there haven't been a lot of bench conferences, and we typically see that a lot. Right. And what have been your observations about the prosecution? I mean, Laura Bach, Christopher Bruckman, have you experienced their work before in any trials? Oh, sure. Trials? Laura's uh, one of the U.S. Attorney's Office's stars. She carries, uh, she does a lot of these high-profile cases. Uh, she has a lot of experience in homicides. Christopher Bruckman is new to me. I don't know him, um, but so far I've been impressed with how he carries himself and the questions he's asked. Yeah, they seem like a pretty good team. Mm-hmm. And and Laura certainly seems like um, uh, she can she can have moments of levity, but she's a no nonsense prosecutor. Yeah, and Christopher Bruckman had a little bit of levity too, with uh, questioning um, the woman who says that she saw Amy uh, uh, walking near the Oyster School on the afternoon uh, of the abduction, and she kept saying that she noticed her because she had a nice bag, <laughs> and um, he, she said it many times, and so Bruckman said, you know, I will never uh, try to uh, uh, let anybody think that I know anything about woman's fashion, but what was it about that bag that struck you? you right. know, and well, she I, answered the question. I've been noticing the fashion in the courtroom, too, so we won't talk about that on the podcast. I leave yeah. that for my blogs. Um, so the defense, uh, public defenders, yeah. uh, Jeffrey Stein and Judy Pipe, right. um, have you come across them before? For. Yeah, Judith Pipe has been around for quite some time. She's well-known in the office, handles a lot of homicide cases. Mm -hmm. I do not know her her second chair. Yeah. So, Jeffrey, um, the thing that struck me about Jeffrey, and I think you've noticed this, he's very soft-spoken. And I don't know if that's intentional because sometimes when people are speaking so softly, you really have to lean in to listen. Um, Judy is very um, stylish. 
you know, and, and she definitely uh, seems like uh, they handle uh, the defendant with a, with a personal touch. I think there's, I've noticed sometimes he would wear a green shirt and then they change him into a white shirt. I've been told that that's kind of intentional, they, they, that white is supposed to be a good color to wear. There's a lot of um, psychology that goes into presenting a case. Yeah, Darren Wint is sitting there. Um, I haven't seen him really move a muscle the whole time uh, that I've been sitting in there. Um, don't see many facial expressions from him. Uh, but you see that typically in defense cases where um, uh, the defense attorneys will be, um, they'll keep their, their client inclusive. Uh, they may touch his shoulder right, I saw that. Uh, or whisper in his ear, that kind of thing. Right, that they're not afraid to be close to him, right. uh, talk to him. They treat him like a, a friend, a regular person. That's right. Yeah. Right. And I also notice whenever the, um, whenever the jury comes in, there's always that knock on the door. Yeah. Everybody rises. Right. Uh, the judge will say, good morning. And, and uh, Darren will say, good morning back to her along with everybody else. And then, and then they sit down. And, and whenever the jury comes back in, he stands. I think that's probably procedure but again sort of deference to the oh they yeah women, they do that in fact the judge the other night said to him mr Wint, have a good evening yeah knowing of course that he was going off to the dc jail right um so let's talk about opening statements um the prosecution i mean the words coming out of christopher bruckman when he started saying this is what nightmares are made of i think everybody really got chills from that um laying out the case we know that it's going to be grisly we know they're going to be talking about um aggravated circumstances uh, an atrocious heinous cruel crime um and we weren't sure if he was going to talk about motive uh, because you don't have to prove motive that's right but he said money greed revenge yeah, one thing we should point out to our listeners and viewers is that uh, we're splitting this case up so that right. you're handling the mornings, I'm handling yes. the afternoons. Um, so um, you're hearing what is being told to the jury in the mornings, and I'm hearing in the afternoons. So what you're hearing and seeing is then just passed on to me. That's right. So, But we're a good team, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. I try to give you considering the, uh, we've exchanged information uh, very accurately I, I so been, far. I have been uh, <laughs> accused of being overly detailed in the past. But we've but been working together yes. for 19 years, yes, so we, have. Uh, we know each other in our work. But um, no, Melanie's notes are meticulous. <laughs> in fact, uh, she highlights a lot of these notes, and she's even uh, uh, diagram. I the do. House, I so. do diagrams of the house. I'm going to try to draw that out better, and um, and put it up on Facebook or something for you guys so you can see sort of that uh, second floor area there where uh, these horrible crimes happen. But I think the thing to point out uh, here in the opening statements is that what the prosecution presented to the jury is mostly everything we've heard before. Right. There wasn't any surprises. The surprises came from the defense because everybody wanted to know, well, how are they going to defend this guy when his DNA was throughout that house? Right. So DNA on the pizza crust. Right. We learned on a knife handle. That's right. Um, on a construction vest that was found in Amy's burned-out Porsche. Also uh, on a hair in a construction hat that was found in the garage in the home. And a hair in the bedding in the bedroom where Savas, Amy, and Vera were found. But I believe only the pizza crust and the knife handle were those conclusive, or what they want to call conclusive, hits. And the others were probable, something like that. Well, keep in mind that his DNA was in the National DNA Databank because he had previously been convicted of a violent crime. So 
when they took that pizza crust and they swabbed it for DNA and they got a hit immediately. That meant that that profile was very, very good, okay? Got it. Because you cannot put a DNA profile into the National DNA Data Bank unless it is a full profile. It has to meet certain standards, oh, okay? Whereas when they tested the knife, my recollection is from the document that I saw was that they, they told uh, uh, the court in the document that it, he could have been a possible okay. contributor. Okay, so oh, you know what? I think I, you're right. It's the vest that had a more positive hit. Uh, yeah. The knife was a was yeah. a possible possible contributor, right? So, um, but it, it wasn't just you know the DNA inside the house. We've got we've got him in a car with thousands and thousands of dollars arrested days later, along with in money orders. Bills. Yeah. Uh, now let's go to that right this second. So okay. that we, this is a question people are asking: is sure. whether or not that money that was taken from the house was numbered, whether it w- could be traced. And they said right away yesterday, the prosecutor asked whether that was the case, and uh, the woman from Bank of America said no, that money could not be traced, uh, untraceable bills. Um, so yeah, people that, had that, that that's question. That's a question from Donna Martello uh, Kuritich. So Donna Donna's a member of our Mansion Murders uh, group on mm-hmm. Facebook, mm-hmm. and we put out some questions. We'll get to some more questions later, too. So, right. Donna, thank you very much for that question, and I hope that uh, Paul was able to answer that, that the money indeed did not have uh, any traceable serial, serial, serial numbers That's on right. it. Um, okay, so the defense, we, we knew leading up to opening statements that the defense had a win in court they wanted to be able to present evidence of possible second suspects. The prosecution argued against it, but the judge said they have enough there. Uh, and then, but we're all wondering, are they going to name names or are they just going to throw out a bunch of doubt? And then we get into court and we hear Jeffrey Stein saying that uh, this is a horrible crime. And yes, we all want someone to pay for it, but it wasn't Darren Wind. It was his brothers. A shocker. Absolute shocker. Um, uh, I think what they're doing is they're playing off what the police said initially, was that Darren went and others were involved, right? So everybody's saying, well, where are the others? For three years, there's no others. No one else is arrested. So the defense comes up with this. Now, are they going to be able to present some kind of evidence that his two brothers were actually involved? Are we going to see physical evidence that they claim can put those two inside the house? That's the intriguing part of right. this, right? Okay, or is this some kind of a ruse that the defense is putting out there um, that the jury, that they want the jury to believe because... Reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt, and that maybe they don't have anything that puts either of those brothers inside the house. And their defense is they were wearing gloves, and they carry That's out right. the crime. They talked about gloves many times. Right? But Darren, was he was the one that was pulled into the uh, crime uh, against his will. Uh, yeah, they said they tricked duped, him into right? it. Like they, they stole his minivan, and yeah. it was his prized possession, and they made him come to the house to get it. And Stefan then left and left Daryl and Darren there. Um, it's a little convoluted and crazy. Uh, but when you, but th- when you think about it, you're like, well, wait a minute. Darren's through the entire house, leaving his DNA on pizza, on a knife, on a helmet, on a vest, hair. But there and were yet other the brothers things, didn't leave anything? But there are other things that DNA was not on. The bloody baseball bats. Yeah, okay? Yeah. There are other th- key pieces of evidence yeah. that had no, uh, mm-hmm. no identifiable 
information on yeah. them, and they were saying, well, that's well what maybe plays they were right in gloves. In, it plays right into the defense. Yeah, then, I mean, how, how do you not have DNA on on what they perceive to be the murder weapon? Plays right into the defense argument. Right. And um, the other thing that they talked about, uh, the defense talked about, um, they're going to try to use a strategy of that evidence collection wasn't good, that um, the quality control wasn't good either. And we knew that when the detective who was on the scene, he, wa- he I think he said he was the first investigator there, um, uh, Mike Pavero. And... Um, he talked a lot about the house. He showed a video of the inside of the house. It was really chilling. Now, you saw that. I didn't I did. see it. Uh, yeah. Give me sort of a sense of what that was. Um, so you, you walk in. They show it from the point of view of the photographer, and Pavero was not the videographer, mm-hmm. so he was just narrating it. And you, you go into the foyer. It's a very stately foyer. It's what you would expect from um, a dc old money mansion you know mm-hmm, what i mean sure. um there's a, a a sort of a cherry wood bureau there in the foyer with two chairs and chinese vases and um the wallpaper that's kind of gray and white with the wainscoting on the side and the fact that you could see that indicates that all the damage was upstairs, all the damage was upstairs. where that's the fire right. was now, there, now when he was showing it there was damage in what they called like the receiving room mm-hmm. and those sort of things because you know you've been to fires before many many times and so when there's water damage you see the the drywall has all yeah. crumbled down but upstairs they go upstairs you start to see it getting darker they turn to the side and then show into the bedroom, bedroom number one, I believe. And, and the, do you see the chairs that they were in? Yes. You do. That was eerie. Yeah. So, well, you know, um, the in the opening statement, they talked about the amount of blood at yeah. the scene. And you could see that in the video. Well, you didn't see the blood on the chairs. They, remember, they talked about a blood-soaked chair, a blood-soaked rug, um, uh, just pools, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, really awful stuff. But what had happened is they had the chairs looked like they, the upholstery had been pulled off. Mm-hmm. And he said that's because they, we had to pull that off for evidence. So the, that video was taken after all the evidence was collected. Yeah, but they left the chairs in they place. They left the chairs yeah. in place. And, yeah, one of the chairs had some dark streaks on the back of it. And then that on the floor, the hardwood floor, this large pool of what looked to be dried or burned blood. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of cracking and peeling. And then it had run down in a way um it was really a horrible scene but also it was because of the fire and because of the fire fighting efforts things were very disheveled things were mm-hmm. kind of all over the place sure. because when the firefighters are in there trying to put out the fire they're not thinking about let's not touch anything so i think that in a way yeah well the firefighters didn't know it was a crime scene right uh, until they're crawling through and they feel the bodies and that then, was chilling then they yeah. saw when they talked about in that fact when we first reported the story we had gotten audio from the firefighters inside the house telling command that they had a crime scene there Right. But you also, the, one of the chilling things also in that video is the, the room where Philip was. The, right. The room where Philip was. Um, Philip was the little boy. Was was completely blackened. Mm. And um, when they when the camera turned to show the bed or what was the bed, it was just a spaghetti mess of burned coils. And that's because they said the fire was so hot there, it completely consumed the mattress. But... Um, uh, the detective did testify he saw the charred body there on top of those coils. 
Um, so, and, and the fire was so hot, the bed was kind of tilted down like this, and there was a, they pointed to a large hole in the floor. So the fire was so hot that it burned through the floor, and oh. the bed started to tilt into that hole. Oh, that's, yeah, something yeah. I hadn't and heard And then before. the bathroom off of the bedroom where Philip was, um, they showed that to, again, just black soot everywhere, but a lot of debris. And that's where the detective testified that he noticed a samurai sword. Mm -hmm. And um, he remembered noticing it because he picked it up, but he had gloves on, but it was sharp, and he thought he might cut himself with it. Yeah. So that may be a point of contention, too. I think they're going to tell us that that sword is um, one of the murder weapons. And, um, you know, who touched it? When was it collected? Why, why wasn't it collected earlier? Right. Uh, all that stuff is going to come into play when you're talking about DNA evidence. And um, they, they, the defense kind of won a point, I think, when they got the detective to admit that there were more than 50 people in and out of that house. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was there for days afterward, and we saw them coming and going. Yeah. We took video of it. I mean, there were lots and lots of officers coming and going, detectives and crime scene search uh, people, ATF, uh, what have you. And um, uh, that's, I think you're going to have that question from a defense down the road where you have so many people coming and going. Um, who was in the house? What did they touch? That kind of thing. You're right. Oh, for sure. And, and they're going to try to pick apart that DNA. We know that. And, and again, as we mentioned, they're going to try to say that some of this DNA belonged to one of the brothers, right? I mean, there's there there's a possibility they could make that argument, right? Well, don't you think that they would have said that in opening statements, that if they had well, DNA from— Well, they mentioned from... something about mitochondrial DNA. Okay. Well, if they did, if they found mitochondrial DNA on a hair— uh, that they believe could be connected to one of his brothers, then that would raise an issue. Uh, and that may be where the defense is going here. Yeah. And he said, yeah, you're going to hear numbers like one in 90 billion, one in 10 quintillion. Um, but they did, uh, they didn't, the defense mentioned something about uh, don't be fooled by hair DNA. I have that as a quote. Yeah, because uh, it's. Uh, uh, one thing that's uh, come up here over the years that I've reported on extensively is that uh, uh, trying to microscopically microscopically uh, compare hairs is junk science. It doesn't work. And many cases have been thrown out because of that, but the FBI used to use it all the time. However, you can do mitochondrial DNA on hairs, but you don't get the same number of markers off a hair unless it has that I used the word earlier when we were off the air. Right. Did I, is that the yeah, right well, word? Yeah, I don't know what you call it, but it's yeah. like that bulb that, that uh, on the end of it, right? Yeah, I call it like because a nodule. Because there's a difference nodule, between, there's uh, a difference between the hair itself right. and that little piece of That's of right. You have to have that, that at the end, into, right. right, in order to get a full profile. Tec without to use a technical term, <laughs> that little bulb on the end. But right. We'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I should know the name of that. Yeah, I should have looked it up before we started this. But anyway, without that, you don't get a full profile. A couple other things in my notes that they said did not have any um, any DNA on it. Duct tape that was found. It was a piece of duct tape, I guess, that was found um, in the garage, maybe. Um, the matches in the match box that were found on the stairs. The sword and the baseball bats. We mm -hmm. mentioned that. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think um, what struck me so far is the number of people who either came and went from the house or made phone calls to the house and talked with the people inside and yet 
No one raised the alarm. Yeah, I agree with you. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the key testimony. Yeah. And that's a lot of what we heard. I think yesterday uh, was were people that were coming and going from the House. Um, we talked about, uh, well, let's see. Let, let's, we'll, we'll go backwards. Yeah, right? Because okay. we've, we've talked to so many. <laughs> it's been a number of days, right? Um, I, I think one of the things they're they're trying to do, they're really trying to narrow down, first of all, the timeline of when the break-in happened yes um so in the, on the first day we heard a lot about where amy was we heard from her dermatologist uh, on wisconsin avenue uh, which is not far from the station here and they showed video and of they her showed going video in the of door her, them, her going in with philip right um and they made a mention that they, the reason they went there is because philip had a cut on his lip from one of the dogs yeah um but they stayed a little while. They showed a, a car receipt that they left around 11 in the morning. And then we don't know where they were. Um, and then you said the testimony of the friend who That's saw right. Amy walking. What time was that? Margaret Pressler uh, testified that she uh, was friends with Amy. She knew Amy very well. She said uh, that they knew each other because their sons were uh, playing baseball together. Um, uh, she, that day, was going to pick up her children at school, and she was coming up Calvert Street past the Oyster School, mm -hmm. and uh, she said she saw Amy. And uh, she was sitting at the light. She looked over, and she saw Amy walking up Cleveland Avenue. Uh, and that she was, uh, she described her as being dressed very nice, and she was carrying a very nice yeah, handbag. No now, problems in the world, 325 in the 325 afternoon. 325 in the afternoon, right. okay, so... Uh, that's key. And, and the defense uh, questioned that extensively about right. how she remembers that time. Um, and uh, she was adamant that she knew it was Amy. In fact, the defense, Judith Pipe, played that same video from earlier oh, the, earlier in yeah, the day of the Wisconsin of, Avenue video of Amy and Philip walking yeah, in, okay. right? Played it and said, if I played you a video of Amy, would, would you be able to recognize her? Uh, and she said yes, and then she played the video, and she says, who's that? And she says, that's Amy and Philip. So she was adamant that it was 325 in the afternoon. So if, in fact, that is the case, and that's the prosecution's case, that means that Amy was then walking up Cleveland Avenue back to her house, and then she would have perhaps walked in on the crime right, in progress. Right, So I find this really interesting because then, again, we heard that um, uh, we heard testimony from the pet resort, Right. where they said that the two dogs, Ginger and Bear, used to vacation. That got a little chuckle out of people, too. Also, the fact that the pet resort would send limos for the, for the vacationers. And, uh, you know, but we know people love their animals and want to treat them. And Amy doted on her dogs. And the woman there testified that um, it did, normally they have long conversations, but they tried to reach Amy because the family had an appointment. They'd booked a weekend for the dogs because they were going out of town for Memorial Day. Um, and they hadn't heard from them, so they called, and they wanted to see if um, if they still wanted the reservation. So somebody tried to call the house. Uh, one of the reservationists tried to call the house, and it was uh, 318, 319? Somewhere around there, yeah. Uh, and, oh, here it is. So the note in the computers of, on 513.15 said, could not leave message for reservation 520 to 523, and this is key, home phone disconnected with a timestamp of 314 p.m. 314 mm -hmm. p.m., someone tried to call the house and says the phone was disconnected. Right. Um, couldn't really 
say how they knew the phone was disconnected because this is a note in the computer. This is not from the woman who was testifying. Right. And then she said, well, Amy's a good client. I have her cell phone number. So we called her cell phone and we left her a message and gave her to call back until 630. So if the phone indeed was disconnected at 314, and we also know that Amy did call back later. Um, uh, they said it was around, she called once and hung up the phone. No, no sound and hung up the phone and then called back 10 to 15 minutes later, sounded a little rushed and said, oh, uh, yeah, go ahead, keep that reservation on file. But she said she sounded sleepy or under the weather, not like her at all, maybe just in shock. Mm -hmm. I don't know, because that would have been about five something. What did they say? Yeah, well, it would have been a couple of hours after, after the she crime had, had begun. And was right. So being and now the captive. call now Nellie, you heard the testimony from yes. Nellie yesterday, which tried to lay down the timeline as well. Right. And she says that she's in uh, the business in Chantilly with Savas and Jordan Wallace and some others. And she says that Amy makes a call to Savas and she was standing there with Savas and she could hear Amy on the phone. Right. Yeah, what you time know when was someone, that? You know, when, you know, they didn't. To be honest, I was looking for that and they did not nail that down. In terms of what they time didn't give that, the exact no, time they didn't give the that time, that and call. I was surprised that yeah. they didn't go through phone records and say what time was that. Um, but then Savas turns to Nelly and says, "I've got to go. Amy's made plans. I need to take care of Philip. You need to close up the business." Right, right. And and we'd had information before that it was. I mean, it was still a little um, a little in flux. I think the information I had earlier was that uh, that phone call came sometime between four forty-five and five thirty. So we still don't know exactly what time. It makes you wonder. Savas got home. It makes you wonder if um, Amy didn't tell Savas exactly what was going on. Oh, I don't think she probably couldn't have, right? Well, that's the question here, right? Right. I what mean, did she if, tell him? If Savas knew that there was something oh, terribly wrong, right? Because if wrong, he just said, if she just said, "Hey, I need you home right away," he would have been like, "I'm busy. Yeah, I gotta, op I gotta close this business. I right. mean, I'm, I've got a grand opening on Friday." Yeah, um, what did she tell him that he doesn't it, right? raise the alarm and right. call the police? Right. Instead, he drives home. And instead, he drives home, maybe. And walks into a crime. Yeah. In progress. Maybe they have Philip. Well, that's the yeah. I mean, those that's where the big questions are, and the only person that knows the answer is the one who committed the crime. Right. And the other thing that they were were really um, when Nellie was uh, testifying, they were also really focusing on that time frame too, that three to three thirty. Yeah. Um, and there because was a lot of back Vera and forth. always left either at three, or Nellie said Nellie sometimes said she'd stay Nellie's at three thirty. Right? Nellie was saying between three and three thirty. Yeah. And the defense was trying to get her to say three because they would they would oh well here's your grand jury testimony, didn't now read this here didn't you say three o'clock, and she's like well I and she was trying to finish it and he would cut her off and then there were objections and bench conference and and then uh, they were able to go back and Nellie was able to clarify and say her normal off time is three but she often stays till 3.30 if Amy needs her to to Aaron yeah. for errands and A things. A big so, part of the prosecution's case right now is laying down that timeline. Right. And and there was a lot of it yesterday as well that we heard in facts and there were some facts about that timeline yesterday we didn't know about before, which was that there was a man with a sprinkler company who showed up right. at the house on the 14th, the day of the murders. He shows up. He says he's there between 9 and 9.30. He goes up to the front door of the house. He rings the bell, but there's no answer. He then calls his boss. His boss says, move on to the next call. And then here's the odd part of this, is that Amy then calls the sprinkler company's office. I have them in my note right here. 
at 1309, which was 109 in the afternoon. 109? 109 in the afternoon, okay? They showed the jury the phone records so you could see them. And, by the way, while we're sitting in the courthouse, I'm, I'm sorry, in the courtroom, which is which is great because some courts don't do this for you. There's a TV facing right. the gallery, so you Two can large see monitors everything. On either side. There's, there's monitors. An, there's an aisle down the middle. Yeah. Right. So you might be sitting on the so, on the side where the jury is. Yeah. I'd be sitting on the side where the defendant is. The defendant's table is directly on the left hand side. The prosecution is on. I'm sorry. I get my left and right mixed up sometimes. L means left. Right? Defense is on the right. Prosecution is on, on, right, on the left. Prosecution's on the left. And the yeah. jury is over by the prosecution and then yeah. the judge in the back. But what's great about this is that the, the, in the gallery we can see everything that the jury sees. So all right. of the evidence is being put on these monitors. And so I saw the records and it specifically said the phone call Amy makes to the sprinkler company is at 109. Wow. Then the man who owns the sprinkler company calls Amy's cell phone three minutes later at one twelve in the afternoon, and he says Amy sounded. Uh, he, I'm looking at my notes. Uh, said she was very nervous. Wow. Said that she had to leave the house that her son was injured. injured. But then we know that the fire happened right after that, just minutes later. It's like one forty-five or something, right? It was. You know, I don't know the exact time. I thought I saw a timestamp somewhere at one forty-five or sometime. So this um, is so. We now know Amy's alive at that time, and then she must have been murdered immediately thereafter. Right, and 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 that's the crazy thing. I mean, are we a hundred percent sure that that timestamp was correct on that on that call at one o nine? Okay, an interesting point. So, in other records that Laura Bach has shown the jury, she has said that the timestamp had been off by an hour. But when she showed these records to the jury, she didn't indicate that the timestamp was wrong. So there would be no reason for them to make the jury recalculate any time. Right. She didn't bring it to their attention that the timestamp was off. And so... Yeah, and that is is really chilling. I mean, when you think about the number of missed opportunities and... Oh, incredible number. What were they going... I mean, I, I don't know what it would be like to be in that situation, and I'm sure... Um, you would do whatever someone told you to do to save your son any more torture or pain. But how do you keep such a um, calm demeanor? A calm demeanor. And even the even the banking people the bank, testified. Uh, CFO. Well, the the CFO. I I heard the testimony right. from the CFO, Mr. Chase, who said that uh, when he spoke with Savas on the phone, he found nothing unusual about his tone of voice. That there didn't seem to be any stress. That everything was normal. And uh, so we know that he spoke with Savas that day. Savas spoke with his sister. Um, the other missed opportunity was um, where uh, Claudia Alfaro testified. Yeah. Uh, she's do- uh, Vera's stepdaughter. Yeah. She and, you goes, know, and we don't – Vera's family kind of gets left out of this story a little bit because people are so focused on the Savopolis family. Yeah. Well, uh, she had a very loving husband. We know that. Um uh, he has not testified, but his daughter testified yesterday. She testified that Vera was like a mother to her, although it was her stepmother. Uh, she broke down in tears when she was questioned initially by the prosecutor. Um, but she told an interesting story in that her father was very worried about Vera, and she wanted – he had just gotten off work, and she wanted uh, – he wanted her to come with him to the house. And they went over because he was nervous. He was worried. He was about very her. worried She's about supposed her. Supposed to come home at night. He yeah. couldn't reach her. He couldn't reach her on her cell phone. Um, they get to the house, 
Uh, Claudia says she stays in the car. He gets out. He goes up to the house. And she says he was away for about 20 minutes. And in that time period, she's text messaging with her boyfriend. She sees Amy's Porsche sitting outside. She knows her boyfriend is a car guy. She takes a picture of the Porsche, and she sends it. And the jury was shown those text messages with a picture of the Porsche. Porsche. The timestamp on that is 9.34 in the morning. Mm. Okay. Then they see a second series of text messages, which my recollection is that it was about 9.54, which would have been about the time that her father comes back to the car. Mm. All right. At that point, her father's phone rings and it's Savas on the phone. So this would have been somewhere around 10 o'clock that morning, which is the morning of the murders. Okay. So Savas says, I'm so very sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I should have called you. I meant to call you. Uh, Amy's at the hospital. Uh, Vera's with her. And uh, as soon as I know more information, I'll call you back. And the the phone call ends. And Claudia says that her father is very uneasy, um, but he doesn't know what to do. And at that point, they decide to go home. And she drives him home. And she goes to work. And didn't ask what hospital, how can they I, did. why I'm can't sure I reach? I know, I that, know. But Savas didn't provide that information. So there's yeah. another lost opportunity. Why didn't Savas give some kind of a signal? You know, that's the, that is, is the mystery to this story of so many, so many chances, contacts. so many contacts, and there's no, nobody gets the red flag. Right. Right. So do we have any questions yet? We don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, honestly, yeah. that that really hasn't come up yet. Yeah, I don't no, know what happened to the dogs. I mean, we know ginger a, we, and bear, right? We know about the dogs, yeah. but you did have some information. I think uh, again, not verified because we're learning things through testimony that maybe change what we'd heard before. But something about firefighters and a dog door. Okay, that was a story we had previously reported. Right, uh, it was that there? Uh, we have to go way back now, years back. Um, that there was a question whether or not there was forced entry to the house. And Chief Lanier, Chief Kathy Lanier at the time, said that there was because they did find a boot print on a side door Got of the it, house right. and that the, the glass on that door was broken. Okay. And so she said and told everybody that there was forced entry to the house. Well, then we later learned that that boot print came from a firefighter right. and that the firefighter had pushed the door in to let the dog out or dogs out. Now, okay. that's my recollection. Right. And that's and, a, that's a and, uh, and again, we just want to say that was Patty Kay on our Mansion Murders Facebook group Correct. who had that question about what happened to the dogs. Good question. And, you know, I, when I go into court and I am able to talk to somebody, I'll try to get an answer uh, maybe on Monday. The, there was back and forth about the dogs, too. So you remember I said that Philip and Amy went to the dermatologist because Philip had a cut yeah. from the dog. Yeah. Um, so it's clear that the defense wants to make you believe that the older dog, Ginger, is aggressive. Vera ha- Nellie testified that um, she was protective and aggressive. She's the older dog. She's the alpha dog. Bear was a puppy uh, and did say that when strangers came to the house that um, it would make Ginger very upset uh, and she could sometimes try to jump on them, but she never bit, and that she also was very compliant. So if you just said no, and she would back down, and then they would very easily, I mean, Nellie's all of five feet tall, 
small woman. Uh, but she could easily control Ginger and put her into the crate in the kitchen. They also made uh, um, some uh, testimony about that the dogs always stayed on the main level, not they didn't they stayed bring, in the kitchen. I think they stayed in the it? kitchen. Yeah. They, the, the they, Ginger, they never Ginger went was, upstairs. Right, Ginger was older. The yeah. Chesapeake Bay Retrievers they said sometimes have trouble with stairs, and the dogs didn't really go upstairs. They stayed in the kitchen. So because I think the question's going to come up, um, well. If a stranger was in the house, why didn't the dogs attack? Sure, that's that would be most people's question, right? Right. But we don't know the but answer. But we don't to know that. the answer to that. And you, no, as don't. you said, and I think mm. so. Th- this kind of leads us into um, Jordan Wallace, which um, we know is yeah. a big, big topic of conversation. A lot of people have had questions about Jordan Wallace, um, and so that theory would be: well, Jordan had been in the house; the dogs knew him. Um, that they would not be uh, aggressive or barking oh, or angry Oh, you're going as to whether or not he might be a suspect. Well, right, yeah. right. Because the, de- the defense has raised the that. The defense yeah. raised that. De- yeah. The defense said, I and mean, in their opening statements, yeah. they said that Jordan Wallace was the one with inside knowledge. He knew the house. He knew the cameras. He knew the people. He was very familiar with everything. What we know about Jordan Wallace is that he was a gopher, an assistant to Savas, and I learned yesterday for the first time that he'd actually been working for him for quite some time. Yeah, we didn't know that before. I didn't know that. So you said since the 2013? Mr. Chase, Ted Chase, the CFO of Iron, uh, American Ironworks, said that uh, Jordan had started working there in 2013, so about two years before. So um, it wasn't, because we had heard before he'd only been with the family for maybe two months. Yeah, and, and so to hear this is that's a little bit new information that we didn't have, and so, um, uh, and we did see a f- picture of Jordan yesterday because they showed the jury a photograph of Ted Chase, the CFO, getting the cash at the bank, and then who's standing in the background but Jordan Wallace, and he's dressed in a nice long sleeve plaid shirt and red pants clearly a guy that was in shape you could see mm-hmm. and he's looking towards the camera and uh, the prosecutor wanted to make sure the jury saw that that was Jordan standing right there and standing right behind Mr. Chase and Mr. Chase had told the jury that in fact he wanted Jordan in there he trusted Jordan and that he wanted eyes on the transaction right right and um, Jordan also came up in Nellie's testimony because they wanted to know what time did Jordan... So Jordan was at the studio, Saba was at the studio, Nellie was at the studio... On the 13th. On the 13th, yeah. um, trying to get ready for this grand opening. And uh, at some point, some of the construction workers left, and they wanted to know when did Jordan leave. And um, uh, Nellie wasn't sure at first, and then they went back to her grand jury testimony, and she's like... Because she had initially said after lunch, but didn't know exactly what time. And then she said between 3 and 3.30. So, again, there's that 3 to 3.30 time frame that they're trying to make something out of, but I haven't quite figured out exactly how each person they're going to connect into that. Um, and the other thing, too, is that um, uh, when they were talking about Jordan Wallace, uh, we... Wanted to. A lot of people thought maybe he would testify this week. He is known as witness number one, which doesn't necessarily mean he's the prosecution's witness number no. one. And they it don't just, have to tell us who's right. coming. No, either. they don't. Um, <laughs> it just means that uh, no. he is witness hey, he number is one when key. it comes to the affidavits. But he is absolutely. He's going to be the star witness because no one has seen him in person in three years, right. despite people going to look for him. So when he shows up. Uh, 
it's going to be electrifying does, inside the courtroom. Right. I mean, the prosecution has to testify. The prosecution said he will testify. He has but to. sometimes that happens, right? Where maybe they might. Do they have no? Did, he's the key to all yeah. of this. He's going to tie all this in. He's going to try and shoot down the defense's uh, uh, defense. Right. Okay, their story. Uh, he's going to try and ruin it. All right, and right. he's going to be on that stand for quite some time. And the defense is going to have a million questions for him, right. and the jury's going to want to hear him. They're going to they're gonna want to hear from Jordan Wallace, right. too. Oh, and I remember the other thing I wanted to make a point about back at the martial arts studio. So Jordan left between 3 and 3.30. The other thing that the defense was trying to um, plant those little seeds of doubt mm-hmm. that maybe Jordan had something to do with it was um, originally the plan was that Vera was supposed to go with Nellie. She was supposed to be at the martial arts studio on Wednesday, not at the house. Um, Amy had told her, go with, you know, I, everyone's trying to get the studio ready. All of you guys, full force, everybody go to the studio. Um, and so to Jordan's knowledge, they, in their minds, in everyone's knowledge, that was the plan. Vera was not going to be at the house Wednesday. She was going to be at the studio. So they tried to make some, um, issue out of whether Jordan knew that Vera was not going to be at the house on Wednesday or whether he might have overheard that Vera was not going to be at the house on Wednesday. What we know happened later is that Vera changed her mind. Uh, She texted with Nellie late on the Tuesday night saying, I don't want to go. I want to go to Washington because I don't want to get stuck in Chantilly. I don't drive and I want to leave at my regular time. Well, the other thing about Jordan Wallace, okay, is we know that he gets the cash from the bank. He puts it into a backpack, and Ted Chase says he watches him drive off with the money. So this is just after 9 o'clock. He then drives over to the house on Woodland Drive. Now, we know from Hyattsville to get to northwest D.C. on a uh, Thursday morning. Uh, he's going against the traffic probably right? Uh, for a little bit. Um, so maybe it takes him 40 minutes to get to Northwest. Do we know Northwest. how long it takes? I haven't uh, looked that up yet. I, I guess I should Google map it and see. I'd say it would take about 35, 40 mm-hmm. minutes maybe to get Depending there. Traffic, right? right. So then where did he go after that? Where did Jordan Wallace go after he drops off the money? He's told to put the money inside an envelope inside the Mosler sports car inside the garage, right? Right. The, do- the car door is unlocked. He leaves it in there. And then he goes. He leaves, right? Now, we know... From the initial affidavit that the police filed mm-hmm. that Jordan Wallace, when he was first questioned by the police, he didn't tell him the oh, truth, yeah. right? He now, didn't. the defense is going to key in on that big time. Right. Okay. I think, didn't he say he went back to the studio? You know, I, I, I didn't I get a chance so. to refresh my memory on this affidavit. I've asked the court to send it over so I can look at it again because there's, you know, it's been three years, so right. I don't remember all the details. And other people wanted to know, um, you know, I guess he was... What car did he drive there and what car did he... So he left his car there and he took a, a car away. My recollection is that his... Green his, BMW. His BMW was found there, parked near the house. So I wonder which car he took away. They they did talk about the family cars. There was the Mosler, there was the Porsche, there was Amy's Land Rover, and there was an Audi that yeah. had been a gift to one of the girls. Yeah, this is, this is stuff that we're going to want to hear firsthand Right, you know? right. And that's another thing that we yeah. found um, is that some of the things we've heard and some of the things that people have talked about on our Mansion Murders uh, Facebook group um, is not exactly as we're hearing it in testimony. Any more? Um, Buster Maxwell. Buster Maxwell. Okay. Where was Amy walking from? 
Oh, good question. Where was Amy yeah, we walking don't know from where she was she, walking yeah. from. Uh, that has not come up in the testimony. Uh, her friend Margaret uh, Pressler only said that she saw Amy out on the street. She said she was dressed very nice in athletic clothes uh, with a nice handbag. And um, we don't. And we know she was at the Oyster School. But if she was, I didn't. What I mean is, she wasn't at the Oyster School. She's she was walking, near, she's walking near the Oyster School, which. If you know Washington, D.C., Calvert Street comes off Connecticut Avenue. It passes the Shoreham Hotel, and then it goes up past the Oyster School onto Cleveland. And then if you walk up Cleveland, you'll get to the Savopolis House, which is just off of Cleveland. So we don't know where she was. but They, they kind of alluded to uh, her father was the first to testify, Amy's father. Um, and they kind of he showed a picture of her uh, when she was in a cafe in Paris, talked about how they were a military family, spent time overseas, and uh, they developed a shared love of European coffees and coffee mm. houses, and that she did eventually uh, lower her tastes and, <laughs> and develop a, a liking for Starbucks. <laughs> well, but there is a, a very nice cafe that sits on the corner of So I think of maybe Calvert they're trying to Connecticut, theorize so, that maybe she yeah. had gone out for a, a coffee or something. I don't yeah, know if maybe they have any she did. evidence to that point. But um, uh, her father's testimony was uh, really a wonderful tribute, I think, to his daughter and to the family. Uh, Jim Martin, um, he talked about how he was at the house frequently because he was doing some work at Walter Reed in D.C. He's a professor, but he's also a former uh, U.S. Army guy. And um, that that was his time on Fridays. He would go to the house and spend time with Philip and, and the other two granddaughters, Katerina and Abigail, uh, before they or when they were home, because we know they were away at boarding school, um, and uh, well, he s- has been to every hearing, every hearing, every hearing. He's a constant. He won't speak to us. He declines to uh, speak with the media, which is, uh, of course, is right. We've asked several times to talk to him, but he doesn't want to talk. But he's now sitting in a row with a victim uh, witness coordinator, uh, Marcy, who's well-known in that courthouse. Right. Um, she sits next to them, and the Savopolises are sitting there. Um, Savopolis' dad and, yep. uh, and mother are sitting there. And they're very—they um, just seem like they're very stoic, uh, always well-dressed, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I haven't seen too much emotion from them either. Here and there— uh, a few tears wiped away, especially in the beginning when they put up pictures of um, everyone in the family. And there was that moment when Nellie broke down hearing the voicemail again from Sava. And um, they took a break to allow her to compose herself. And as she was walking down the aisle, she stopped at uh, Philip and leaned on him and, and hugged him and just said, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, it's, there's it's so some of the hard. things that we see in the courtroom that you, you can't even get into your stories. You can't, you know? which is why it's so wonderful that we have this new platform here, this podcast, yeah. that we can really can uh, talk about of some of those things. details. And I know you and I are also, as much as we can, trying to post some daily updates as well. Yeah, by the way, we can't tweet from the courtroom. so That's right, yeah, so you uh, won't be seeing any live tweeting. It would have been ideal to really tweet out what was going on in there, but we're not allowed to yeah, do that. Yeah, we'd had some um, questions about court procedure in D.C. D.C. just doesn't allow cameras. They don't allow you to use yeah. electronics in the courtroom. No cameras. Um, so basically what we're doing is um, Mel and I are uh, uh, at breaks. Uh, when there's a key witness, uh, we're running outside and we're uh, getting our photographers to get pictures of key witnesses as they're leaving. So 
Uh, if you're curious about what some of these people look like, uh, they're in our, our television broadcasts. I had video of Mr. Chase yesterday and a video of Nellie. Uh, and we had some video of the sprinkler uh, guys, uh, but we didn't put that in our TV stories. Right. Um, did we get a chance to talk a, a whole lot about the security system? I think we mentioned it, but we didn't really go back on it too much in detail. Uh, that was uh, uh, my lead part of my story yesterday right. after you had given me a fill on what you had heard yesterday morning because that was something that we had not heard before. And there were questions as to whether or not there was a surveillance system at the house. And I was convinced that there wasn't because I was at that house for days and days and I never saw any cameras. And so uh, I didn't think there was one, but we right. learned that there was. There was. And, uh, let's just say there was kind of. Yeah. Um, it wasn't live monitored, no. which is, that's a key part here. Yeah. Because anybody well, that has an alarm system, it's worthless unless it's live monitored. Well, I will tell you that um, Eric Pellock, who testified about the security system, he runs the company. He was adamant that that security systems are not what you think. It's not like there's a group of people that are sitting down uh, watching for alerts coming up on your screen. It's not like the emergency communications center that mm. you see when you see the commercials there. He is adamant that there is no such thing as live monitoring, mm. um, that what happens is the alerts go off and they go sort of they're sort of cached in a bank. You know, you might get an alert if your system is set up on your phone. Hey, your such and such uh, yeah. alert went off. Um, but it's not what you imagine it to be. Now, this system was set up. There were cameras on the outside uh, and there was a, a camera right at the front door that was supposed to be set up so that you could monitor that camera on your cell phone. Um, but it was still in flux. They were they were had installed the system. They were they said they'd had some trouble with it before. They they wanted to be um, uh, careful about false alerts. He mentioned he talked about they also had glass break sensors on some of the windows. That's pretty typical. Yeah, for, for but a, he didn't recommend system. glass break sensors because they tend to false alert mm -hmm. a lot. Like if you were to drop a glass or your keys on the counter or something like that, it might alert. That's right. But it always just resets itself. But nothing happens with that alert. It just alerts, you get an alert, and then it resets itself. And then the cameras... Um, were, were sending whatever they recorded right. to a self-contained self computer That's up the on the Paul. third floor. Right. The, those pictures weren't going anywhere except, except to a computer hard drive that was uh, in the third floor computer utility room. closet, a computer, a Dell computer, he said, yeah. um, there in this utility room up on the third floor. The third floor had Philip's bedroom and then a large media room where there was a, a, a ping pong table, an air hockey table, a widescreen TV, a couch. Uh, that's where everybody would go and hang yeah. out. Um, their basement was not really finished, so that upstairs media room that they, I guess, had recently remodeled. Um, and in the opening statements, they said that that, that device was yes. was gone was gone it was taken except that they found a, a metal piece a case of it in mm. the bedroom bedroom one as if where, he was just trying to steal the hard drive and right that was it. but what we know is that um sava called and spoke with the owner of the security company twice on the wednesday the 13th and thursday the 14th wanting to know where does the video get recorded and is it in the cloud and it like he needed to know that several times. And um, clearly, whoever was holding them captive wanted that video. Oh, that was key. Yeah. Um, and uh, think about it. If, if, in fact, that had recorded 
you know, or if it, it gone to the cloud, the, the killer did so many things wrong here. Yeah. Okay. And this is one of the things he did right, right, is that he takes the video. There's no video evidence of it coming on going from the house, but he left his DNA inside the house. <laughs> right, if in yeah. fact Darren Wint is guilty, right? So, if uh, presumption of innocence, you know, that's how a lot of these people get caught, right? Uh, yeah. These days, we see so many crimes where they don't care whether they're caught on a surveillance camera. Right. And here, there, is, there could have been surveillance, but new enough to make Sava call, find out exactly where that video is, and how can I destroy it? Yeah. So the last witness of the day yesterday, and by the way, the court does not sit on Fridays. That's why we're sitting here, um, was Claudia Alfaro. And then uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is that the prosecution is running through their witnesses very quickly. Ah, so yeah. the jury is is going uh, almost every day early. Um, in fact, opening statements, they left. Uh, One o'clock. Right. They were gone. Yesterday they were gone early, uh, 4 o'clock. Um, so we don't know who's coming up Monday morning. Um, but if I had to bet, I would say they're it's Jordan the, they're, Wallace. They're, they're, leading, they're leading us down a path yeah. where the only logical next person to testify, yeah. the next person in the sequence, would be Jordan Wint. And I hope uh, Jordan that— Jordan Wallace. Uh, sorry, Jordan Wint. Uh, I hope, Jenny Duffy, that that answered your question. I know you had a number of questions about Jordan as well on our, um, on our Facebook yeah, group. That's the one thing I want to drive home here is that we've never seen Jordan— yeah. I don't know anybody has spoken with Jordan. Um, and so he walks into that courtroom, it's going to be electric. And, uh, you know, we know that he took pictures of the $40,000. That's right. We didn't even mention that. Right. Right. That he took pictures of. And uh, texted his, his girlfriend. Right. Wow, what a cool job I have. Yeah. Right. Love yeah. Something like to that he, effect. I think he took pictures of the, the car he was in, too, wasn't he? Uh, uh, no, he had previously t- posted pictures about Amy's yeah. Porsche. Yeah. I, I never saw the, I don't think anyone's actually seen the picture that was deleted that he texted his girlfriend of the cash. Maybe we'll see that in court. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the prosecution brought that up. They're not trying to hide Jordan Wallace from anybody. They're, they're, no, they have to, they're, they have they, to put They basically said, yeah, he, he is, was stupid. The, they, they said. He's the he, wild card in all of this. They said Jordan will tell you that he was stupid for texting that picture and then deleting it uh, because he was afraid he would lose his job. That's why they said he deleted it because yeah. Saba told him, you know, to keep this on the on the down low. Um, and he's going to have to explain why he lied to the police. And that, uh, here's another interesting thing: in the in the opening statement, they said that Jordan has nothing to hide. He said, "Go ahead and search everything I got." They, he gave a DNA sample, and they said that Jordan Wallace was seen at Lowe's on a security camera video at the same time when Darren Wint was ducking back under the garage door at Woodland Drive. Now, how do they know he was ducking under the garage door? I don't know, drive? but I was out there this morning, and well, I see, noticed that's something I hadn't heard. <laughs> I know. I was out there this morning, and I noticed that um, some of the other neighbors have well, so security, there's a security cameras. Security camera on one of the other. Then the, the neighbor across the street from the garage has huge security cameras oh, outside. So whether those were there three years ago, I don't know. I had not heard that. That's an interesting piece of information. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. More to come. Right. So, do we have any other questions? Yes, we are. Okay, so Tiffany Brooks Facebook Live wanted to know if the 
defense asked if the pizza delivery driver ever noticed that the garage door was open. They did not ask him that. He didn't say anything about the side of the house. So the Woodland, the house sits at 32nd Street and Woodland Drive, and the front of the house is on Woodland Drive. The garage is on the back or on the side on 32nd. So the pizza delivery driver said he followed the instructions to leave it on the front stoop, front porch is what he called it. It's not really, they don't really have a porch, but there's a, um, uh, some steps up from the sidewalk and then a long um, sort of uh, slate walkway before you get to the front door. And he said that everything was off except for the, uh, the porch light. So didn't, didn't notice anything, didn't really, he thought it was unusual that he would get that kind of request, but he didn't really think much of it. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about the, the pizza delivery, but I think it's pretty cut and dried. I, I don't think there's a lot of mystery to it. He, uh, Amy paid for it with her uh, credit card. Uh, the manager gave him the pizzas, said take them down there. The instructions were leave them outside the house, and he did, and he left. He didn't see anything unusual. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's so many more people to hear from. Um, but I think Jordan Wallace is going to be key. And then um, I, I worry a little bit about the jury. We know things are going to get pretty tough in terms of the yeah, they medical show those examiner. Photographs, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're going to have to show them because they do that in every trial. Every trial I've been in, you sit there and they show the photos because they have to prove to the jury that these people are deceased and that they were murdered. And you're going to see those photos, and it's going to be gruesome, and that's not going to be easy. I have to wonder if the family's going to sit there for that. If I were family, I would say, you know what, I think I can sit out of court today. Yeah, who'd want to see that if you're a family member? Yeah, and I know occasionally they do um, offer services um, for juries who have been through very um, difficult trials. Yeah. Um, we, we all need everybody needs it everybody has been um affected i think in some way or another just your your sense of security when you go to that neighborhood you see the way these people lived what could go wrong in their lives it it really shakes you to the core and i think that's one of the things about this case that's so mysterious and why everybody's so intrigued by it and um in, in all my years covering crime here in dc uh, i've never seen a more vicious crime and um, uh, it's uh, uh, going to be interesting to see how this plays out here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So Paul and I will be uh, staying on it. I'll take the mornings. Paul will take the afternoons. And, again, we'll be doing uh, updates on our Facebook pages and our Mansion Murders Facebook group. Yeah, if also, you have a question, uh, Mel and I are happy to answer it on the Facebook page. Um, I've been looking on occasionally as, as I can. We try to catch up as much as we can. So we also want to let you guys know um, you can download this podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, also on Audio Boom, And, of course, you can follow along on our Fox DC Facebook page and if you'd like to please join the uh, Mansion Murders uh, Facebook group uh, and we can go ahead and uh, get you guys to join up on that and we'll um, go through all of this together. Paul, thank you very much. You're welcome, Melanie. Happy to be here. All right. We'll see you guys next time.